Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure for me to be talking to an author with whom I've probably spent at least 20 years, probably 20, more. 20 plus, yes. Yeah, indeed. Mark DeCustreek. And we have we have wended our way through two series, one with Burying Barry the Undertaker slash Lawman from Greensboro, North Carolina. Do I have that right? It is Greensboro. Uh, Gainsboro. 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 Gainsborough. Well, there you are. Um, anyway, and um, the other with Sam Blackman and his partner, a wonderful series set in Asheville and North Carolina. So Mark is actually in those two series toured us around all over North Carolina and other spots. You get to learn about local history, local personalities. Um, it's been wonderful. The Sam Blackman series in particular takes you to some cultural high points like the Biltmore House or, well, Utah, it is your series. Where else do we get to go and visit? Photographers, poets, authors? Go to uh, yeah, Thomas Wolfe and F. Scott Fitzgerald's time there, the Grove Park Inn, which you're familiar with, I believe, uh, in Asheville. That's a historic uh, inn that was built back in the 1913s. And, and usually some events in the past of Asheville, some I've made up, some are actual real events that I just do a present take on maybe the consequences those events in the past are having on my characters in the present. So, well, no, I know we've done astronomy. We have done um, photography, a woman photographer who was outstanding, which is the poet that we went to visit. Carl Sandburg. Right. Goats, if I remember yeah, right. You got it. It's Carl Sandburg. <laughs> in fact, I, I went to junior high across the street from his farm and we didn't know he was a poet. We just called him the goat guy because there were always the goats out in the field you'd walk past on the way to school. Oh, that's so funny. Well, I have spent a lot of time because I used to live in Virginia, a lot of time in North Carolina, a lot of time in Asheville, which has really boomed for a variety of reasons. North Carolina has become a big hotspot for retirees. Um, and a lot of the old properties that was all kind of rural have been gentrified. Um, there are some, even in Bristol and in Virginia, you know, around the lakes now, there are these palaces that never existed before. So it's like a whole new version of the mountains and mountain culture. And Asheville has been one of the fastest growing, is it not, Mark? It is, and it's also now become the probably the most expensive housing market uh, in North Carolina. The thing I like about Asheville is that you've got a, a combination of retirees, locals who've been there for hundreds of years, and what I would call, they're probably not new age anymore, they're probably old age, but new age crystal vortex people, like similar to you have in uh, Sedona, Arizona. Right. In Sedona, we have the whole guess, uh, thing. But yeah, Asheville is yeah, also yeah, a college town now, you know, so um, there's also a student mix in Asheville. So lots going on, right? Correct. That's right. That's why right. I try to get up there as often as I can. You know, I'm based in Charlotte, but uh, Asheville is only a couple hours away. So we try to get there as often as we possibly can. Right. And so the geography and the geology of North Carolina has also been important. The rivers, uh, some of the local industry, certainly the mountains. Um, so anyway, I loved all that. But Mark, every once in a while, would go rogue on me in between books <laughs> in these series. He would decide he was going to write a thriller. And he got involved in um, some DC dirty doings, for example. Um, so I always knew that there was this kind of suppressed thriller writer underneath the procedural guy because 
Barry was a police procedural series and Sam and Nikayla were um, a private eye series. Uh, but then, as I say, there'd be these rogue books. So towards the end of our time, actually working together at Poison Pan Press, Mark came up with a manuscript, which is now called Secret Lives in front of me, um, in which he decided to kind of go rogue again. Um, and well, I'm going to ask him to tell you about it. But what I think is interesting, Mark, is there's a whole kind of a thing going on for elder sleuths at the moment. I mean, for a long time, the elder sleuth, uh, the go-to elder sleuth, aside from like Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, was Mrs. Polifax. It was a wonderful series by Dorothy Gilman, and Mrs. Polifax was a, um, a spy. I mean, I think she was XCA. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, she got away with a lot because she was, you know, looked like a harmless old lady. But in fact, she was anything but. Um, I really loved Mrs. Polifax and Dorothy Gilman, who died some years back. Um, and it's kind of hard to find the books right now, although I think it's probably possible um, digitally, if nothing else. But all of a sudden, there's been this kind of renaissance, as the British would say. Uh, Deanna Rayburn wrote a really powerful Elder Sleuth book, the name of which I can't recall at the moment. Last August, it was a big bestseller. Um, was, it, was it Killers of a Certain Age? Yes, thank right. you. That was exactly it. Um, of a certain age. My certain age means I can't <laughs> remember a lot of things. I could remember the book, but not the title. And I have um, over on my shelf, when I get to it, Spencer Quinn has written a book about Mrs. Plansky, which is going to be a big hit this summer. Um, and and there'll, be, there'll be more. And there's a lot of advantages to having um, a savvy older sleuth, part of which is that older women in particular are kind of invisible so they can get up to stuff without people really noticing them much or worrying about them much or whatever so underestimating we, them yeah we have an elder sleuth here so secret lives is that book it came out actually a few months ago but mark and i didn't have a chance to talk but since it came out in january we discovered that it has been nominated for the 2023 Sue Grafton Memorial Award, which the, is part of the Edgars presentation now. There's the Edgars themselves, Mystery Writers of America, the Edgar Allan Poe Award. There's the Mary Higgins Clark Award, which Simon & Schuster, her longtime publisher, sponsors. There's the Sue Grafton Award, which Putnam, her longtime publisher, sponsors. And then there's a new one. I'm trying to think of the fourth one. Do you remember what the fourth one is? No, I don't. It'll come to me in a minute. It might be for historical fiction. I can't recall exactly. But anyway, those it's a whole tier, and it's decided um, at the end of April. Uh, there's a um, banquet in New York, the MWA, Mystery Writers of America Awards, and it's, it's a really big deal. Um, I myself have been like, fortunate enough to win two awards. The only well, I've been nominated for an Edgar, and actually this year I'm nominated for an Edgar again, which I think is hilarious. Oh, Marianne Evans, our fellow author, you know, from Poison Pen Press, um, put together for Bloomsbury, she and another woman uh, put together a book about Agatha Christie, and I contributed and edited a chapter. So it's a, it's a group thing. It's not but earlier, I was nominated for Nigger in 1996, and I've also run the Raven Award for contributions to Mystery Dumb and the Ellery Queen Award for editorial work. 
So there. And now I have Mark, which I love. Several of our books, in fact, were nominated for Edgar's. Do you remember um, Charles Benoit's first book? Yes, I do. That was the first time I remember a Poison Pen Press author nominated. I think Charles was the first first one, if I'm remembering correctly. And then I think we actually won two or three reference books, um, reference book awards, too. Right. So we published... A number, there's no money to be made as a rule in reference books. So um, we take a small press that wasn't profit oriented to actually want to publish reference books. Um, Colleen Barnett did one. Um, there is one about poisons. I'd really have to go back and look. But anyway, we've been we've been very fortunate. And I'm so pleased that Mark is a, a new person carrying the banner for Thank Poison Pen Press, which is now an imprint of source books because we sold Poison Pen Press to source books in January of 2019. And I am no longer the editor for Poison Pen Press, but I did work with Mark on Secret Lives before the sale. So it's been a while. This book's been in the works now for what, four years? Yeah, actually, um, not only did you read that early manuscript and help me with it, you and the bookstore are the reason that character came into existence. I don't know if you know that story or not, but- uh, I'm not sure. Well, if I do, I don't remember it. It was in December of 2019. You invited me uh, to come to the bookstore. I had a book coming out called Murder in Rat Alley, which had to do with the Apollo space program and the tracking systems that were there. And one of the one of the tracking systems is in, buried in the Pisgah National Forest, uh, which is outside of Asheville. But on the way, after I came for the signing and the event, on the way home, flying back from Phoenix to Charlotte, I sat by a young woman and we got talking. And uh, I said, Are you, do you live in Charlotte? Are you going to Charlotte? And she said, uh, no, I'm changing planes. I'm going to Washington, D.C. to visit my great aunt. She's 85 years old, and she lives in the house she was born in, which I found unusual, not only to live in the house you were born in, but in Washington, D.C., where there's quite a bit of turnover uh, in the housing market. And I said, does she live with other family members? And the woman told me, said, no, she doesn't. She's the only family member, but we don't worry about her because she rents out rooms to Secret Service and FBI agents. And we always know there's somebody in the house with a gun, was what she told me. And so I thought, now that's that's a character that's worth telling a story about. Uh, and so I decided to make her an FBI agent herself, her history with the Bureau. A friend of mine who was my father's generation when she was in high school in DC, used to ride the bus into the FBI building and work in the fingerprint department mm-hmm. as a 14 year old girl. And so I kind of mashed those characters together to come up with Ethel. My guiding personality that I saw in this character was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, someone who I thought would be brilliant, sharp, feisty, suffer no fools, whatever. And, and someone who in her role would be underestimated by the bad guys. And so that's Thanks to you and thanks to the bookstore and thanks to my seating on this plane, uh, Ethel came into being. Well, how more power to her and she has real potential. But so what we have actually here is um, Ethel Fiona Crestwater is her actual name. She's 75, looks like her grandmother, although she's never been married, doesn't have children, um, doesn't look like a threat. She was kind of petite and frail. Ho, ho. And then what happens? I mean, because that's, you know, what we think. And then there's what we call the instigating incident. Yeah, one of her rumors uh, that's in present day is shot and killed on her front lawn. 
uh, in the, about 4 a.m. And so uh, he was a Secret Service agent. Ethel also has staying with her, her uh, only living relative, who Jesse Cooper, who is her double first cousin, twice removed, uh, who is raised up in California, never knew Ethel, but came to grad school at American University in DC. And so he is now in the house too. And he, and he watches Ethel take charge of this murder scene in a way that totally shocks him that she would be this savvy, this uh, brilliant in what she undergoes as she investigates the scene. And she shares information with the police, having rented rooms to boarders for, since she was 22 and she's now 75. She knows everybody in the FBI hierarchy, has their numbers on speed dial, and can play them off one another, the FBI off, off of the Secret Service. And so she was just a lot of fun to write. And um, I discovered things about her in, in the case as the case progresses. It gets involved with cryptocurrency, which was a fairly new topic at the time when I wrote the, wrote the book. But now we've had seen crashes and other things with cryptocurrency. Now you can write an entirely different book about <laughs> cryptocurrency, right? That's, that's right. So, uh, so that was part of the element of the, of the plot uh, with, with um, trying to uh, solve what, why this guy was killed, why there was counterfeit money in his room, and uh, why is there millions of dollars that go unaccounted for that are lost somewhere in the Bitcoin world. So, oh, Lord, you know, you anticipated Sam, by <laughs> Sam and his cohorts by quite a lot. You know, that's a problem, isn't it, Mark? When you're writing crime fiction, you think you're on the cutting edge of something. And then by the time the book comes out, in your case, a particularly long time, you know, that cutting edge technology has, has moved on. Yeah, it's, it is a risk. I'll, I'll jump ahead real quick. There's a sequel to the book coming out in September. Uh, and the, in that plot, I had this brilliant idea that there would be a leak in the Supreme Court. And so, so of course, after I finished the first draft of the manuscript, the whole Roe v. Wade leak blows up. So I had to go back and at least acknowledge it. And this is kind of the strange part is that my justice, Ethel gets paired up with the chief justice who was a woman. So that's one fictional element I hope becomes a fact fairly soon in our, in our country. And, uh, and, and there was a, a case that was being leaked out. And even though I've got a fictional chief justice and fictional eight associate justices, the fact that the Roe v. Ward Wade leak came out, I had said it was the first time there had been a leak. I couldn't let that stand in the book. So I had to go back and acknowledge that even though everything else about the story was fictitious. Well, that was a relatively easy fix. And of course, right. you know, I don't think they're ever really going to discover, well, not anytime soon, who the leak was. And also the motivation, because it actually could have been Alito himself, you know, hoping to put pressure on the uncommitted members of the court. I think that's actually the most popular theory, is mm -hmm. that it was leaked in order to force um, a majority to support Roe v. Wade, which I think is I think it cost, it certainly cost the Republicans votes. It might have cost them the election in terms of, you know, because it became a huge rallying point, certainly here in Arizona, which is a very conservative state, you know, that um, the present governor, I think, owes Roe v. Wade a big debt in terms of her, her victory. And then, you know, we sit around and we watch Ireland, Mexico, you know, right. countries that, that were conservative, 
majority Catholic, the whole bit. We've, we've taken this big step backwards while these other countries have moved forward. Um, you know, I just, I just find it absolutely astonishing the, you know, the retrogression that we are seeing in so many respects. I don't know how people in Florida can, can stand it, what's happening in education and so forth in Florida. And for those of you watching it from Florida, if I've offended you, I'm sorry, but you know, I mean, come on. Um, it's just, it's just, it makes us look like idiots, you know, to be busily going backwards while the rest of the world is moving forward. Right. So, well, anyway, um, good for you. I mean, I think that's an interesting story, but I'm assuming that you have a clearer motive in the leak and probably eventually identify the leaker. Right. I thought that, you know, just like leaks in Congress can be monetized. It's sort of like if you knew a decision by the Supreme Court was coming down that affected major corporations, you would yeah. know whether to buy stock or sell stock in sure. advance. Um, as we talked about cryptocurrency and secret lives in this book, which is called Dangerous Women, um, the whole electronic electric vehicle push is part of the court, a court case that's wending its way into the Supreme Court. This is the one that's leaked because lithium, as the New York Times describes it, is now the new gold because right. all these batteries need it. And we only produce 2% of the world's lithium. So we see ourselves winding up in the same place where we were with oil, where we're dependent upon maybe not so friendly nations that have lithium supplies and we haven't developed it. But to mine lithium, open mining, is so toxic, it destroys the landscape for like 300 years, contaminates the water, and it's some of the big sites are in the West, like Nevada, where you don't have a lot of water in Nevada in the chronic drought that you're in, and, and with uh, feeding, I guess, Scottsdale and Phoenix depend upon water coming down from the Colorado River and those yeah, rivers. we're part of that whole Colorado compact and probably beginning to look at um, at water rationing. Uh, there'll be more pressure on California to desalinate since they're the only one of the five, it's either five or six states in the compact who actually can do that. Although mm -hmm. we could do a little, I guess, if we went all the way down, there's a little tiny bit of Arizona down um, that probably could, the Gulf of Cortez probably could do some desalination, but, um, I don't know. I read that the you know the climate shift that uh, we're moving from La Nina back to El Nino, Nino, um, and that might temporarily alleviate the drought. But all the Pacific Rim countries, I've traveled in Peru extensively, and there there's a whole cycle there of you know drought. And then um, if you go down to Arequipa, there's a a little girl um, whose body was thrown out of a glacier, but she was a sacrificial victim. Um, wow. And it, it's imagined that it was because when the when the drought was so severe, you know, that the people thought that the gods needed to be appeased, didn't understand the Humboldt current or whatever it is that goes rocketing by. Maybe not the Humboldt, but anyway, whatever current it is. Right. Um, so I don't think that situation is going, our situation is going to have any kind of easy answer to this for sure. So you're right about lithium. No, but, and that, and that, that, set up the, that, that set up the conflict because you've got ranchers and, and Native Americans who have land issues and water issues, and you have mining and federal land that's granting these things. 
that are in direct odds to what the priorities are for these other groups. So I found that interesting and put it in the context of the Supreme Court decision that is being leaked is sort of the, the motivation and the energy within that story. So you're going with follow the money, which is always yeah. <laughs> an excellent Fairly safe right? <laughs> That's true. That's it really true. is. You know, though, I find I hadn't really considered this, but the Wall Street Journal had a big piece the other day about electric vehicles and the fact that they can be hacked. And, you know, all of the dangers then that may start occurring, you could be kidnapped while driving your car. <laughs> well, seriously, you know. That is interesting, yeah. Yeah, no, if somebody takes control of your electric vehicle, you know, it's all about computers and all, they can hack your car, they can, you know, they can drive you over a cliff, they can kidnap you, they can do all kinds of 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 things and it, it really made me suddenly think twice about whether i really wanted to have an all electric vehicle it puts a new meaning on computer crash that's for sure yeah no absolutely true but anyway it's a fun thing for you to explore um we can't say a whole lot more about ethel um without spoiling secret lives but What's going on with your other people? Are you going to have a chance to write another Sam Blackman, for example? I, ha I have a Sam Blackman book coming out in April. Um, and this it, April? It's the, this April. It's the ninth one in the series. And I was, you know, I find this with my characters that sometimes I worry about them. You haven't visited them in a while. And uh, in June and July of 2020, when... Um, the pandemic was at its ravaging worst and the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd murders were causing protests and the Confederate monument issues were going on. I wondered what would what was happening to Sam and Michaela in Asheville because Asheville was not immune to any of these things going on. And, um, and, and you may be familiar with this, Barbara, there was a uh, FBI file that was declassified that was J. Edgar Hoover's investigation into Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. Junior. Uh, and part of that declassified file talked about the two times that he came to Asheville and the threats on his life and the fact that they had confidential informants, but nobody knew exactly who the perpetrators were or potential perpetrators were. So I took that declassified document and used it as the basis for creating who the perpetrators were in my story. Okay. And that they wind up tying into Michaela, Sam's girlfriend, and, and they're an interracial couple, uh, into what they thought was her father's suicide. And I thought was her father's suicide when I wrote that in one of the earlier books, but then really now know that it, he was murdered. And when he was murdered, he was reading through this declassified document. So that sort of let me tie in current issues uh, with something that happened back during the days of Martin Luther King and, and Michaela's father's death. So it's called the uh, the secret of FBI file 100-3-116. Sort of a technical title, but that's the actual name of the of the file and that uh, that we use to, um, to perpetrate this the plot line uh, for Sam and Michaela to follow. Well, you've then I've got, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say you've always had Sam and Michaela working some mystery in the past that connects to the mystery in the present. Right, I find that that fun because it helps me learn something, and I'm I would hope that, as you said earlier in this conversation, that you learn something about Asheville and and the history and the uh, culture of the region uh, in while you're reading the book, and that comes through best if you're dealing with something from the past that you learn about while you explore it in the present. That's that's kind of the I guess trope maybe the word or yeah. or uh, 
Well, this one interests you, Mark. You know, you've um, always, um, you've always enjoyed the local history. Right. And again, it gives me an excuse to get up there and have hit the restaurants and the bars. So that's part of the research, of course. Of course it is, right. Nashville is a very vibrant, very interesting. It's a foodie community. It's a sports, you know, kind of center. It's all, it's a very, it's a cultural center too. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff, a lot of music, a lot of uh, literature, all kinds of things. Thomas Wolf, and we've already mentioned him and Carl Sandberg enough, but, um, you know, it's a, I think it's, a really fascinating part of, of North Carolina. I know it better than the coastal parts. I know it much better than Charlotte because it was closer to Virginia and a relatively easy drive. So I've always loved that series. Are you, is Barry kind of buried at the moment? At the moment, you know, I left him in a, that book has seven in the series. I'm, I would hope maybe to be able to go back and catch up with him. I, I left him in a very good place, moving mm -hmm. back into the funeral home, married, and was expecting twins. And so that's kind of where we where we left him. And uh, I think, you know, if I do another book or two with Ethel, we'll see how Ethel progresses and Sam, that there may be room in there for Barry to reappear and hopefully catch up with what's going on in his life. Well, Barry, you know, I think of all your books, he's, <clears throat> they have the most humor. You always had wonderful dialogue and some of the characters in there were, um, in fact, remember you and I had a really huge debate over the reappearance of um, of a character in You're Too Soft-Hearted to just post of her and I insisted that you kill her. <laughs> I was just like, come on, Mark, enough. <laughs> what I want to say is I had two books came out back to back. And in the first book, you would not let me let a character live. You said, this person has to die because of what they've done. And then the book that came after that you told me you're not letting this character die <laughs> this character's too interesting so I've always kind of you you've got good instincts obviously and I followed your advice so sometimes you're the one that says whether a character lives or dies and I'm the one that gets the blame <laughs> right kind of a DS back well anyway but I was right I think for the, right. the stories both times um that um I think it was harder for you to kill the character than it was to let the other one live. But right. it really, there really was no other good solution to it. And, you know, sometimes when you're writing crime fiction and people are despicable or really harmful or whatever it is, you do have to give the reader some kind of resolution that, you know, so they don't go out wrecking lives and carrying on. And, you, and if you kill them, you save all the court costs, which is what you pointed out to me. Well, that too. It's much more economical. <laughs> what did it cost California to keep Charles Manson alive forever? And to what purpose, I might add. You know, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of capital punishment, but I am a fan, at least in fiction, of neatly disposing <laughs> of characters like, like Manson and kind of see where we are. Do you know, Mark, that we were um, cleaning out a storage locker um, a couple of weeks ago at the bookstore at the Poison Pen, and we discovered a big cache of your books in hardcover. So oh. they're no longer in print, and I don't have a complete list of which ones they are but um, we're going to get them together and then I'll send you a list so you can tell your fans because this is the only place they're gonna be able to actually sure. get these books. Sure, okay, no, yeah. I'd be happy to do that. 
I think it'd be really fun. It'd be lovely if you'd come and see us, but I don't know that you're going to be, you know, that you're going to be toured, but you're always welcome to come if you'd like to. Thank you. I'll always enjoy being there. And like, maybe I'll find a new character if I come back. Well, you could do that. I mean, seriously, you know, we could talk about Sam. Well, let's let's take a look at it because somehow or other, I have missed the fact that you had an April book and I'm not entirely clear why that happened, but obviously I should have been alert to this um, publication. We had we had uh, you know tried to space them out. It's from a different press than source book, so I had uh, ah that would explain it. Where's put it in a, with from? a with a six month uh, window between the two the two books, so uh, it kind of worked out so the one's not stepping on the other. Got it. Well, I'll tell you what. When this is over, why don't you email the information about Sam? Okay. And then I will I will get it together. I was feeling really incompetent. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is just. This is something that just happened fairly recently. So ah, you're, you're not okay. behind the times. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting that some Poison Pen Press authors have found other um, paths to publication since we sold the press. Um, and I try to keep up with Al Warren, for example, is actually working with um, with Ingram, with um, uh, Lightning Source, because he wanted to continue writing his wonderful Oregon series, which I absolutely... I think they're fabulous myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm really pleased about that. Um, so, you know, March is small press month, which means our independent publishing month, I can't remember which one it is, but there are there are paths to publication beyond the five major publishers, probably soon to be four, but maybe not. Maybe Simon & Schuster will in fact belong to a hedge fund and, yeah. um, and carry on as Simon & Schuster, which I personally think would be a decent solution to it because the rest of them, I mean, it, it'd just be too big to, you know. Uh, but then there are several small presses, such as source books, smaller presses that, um, you know, are, are moving along. And then there's some startups coming along. So there really should be an avenue for um, many avenues to publication, let's put it that way, available. Can I ask you then, as a, as a bookstore owner, how do you sort through all the offerings that you come in for maybe new presses just based upon personal reading of it, staff reading the books and making recommendations for authors that are coming off of small presses? Well, it's it's certainly not not easy to keep up with it. Um, it's I can keep up with authors with whom I worked for 20 years. You know, I'm paying attention to what they're doing. Um, there are distributors that consolidate um, small presses, for example. Um, and so if you work with them, now there's International Publishing Group, there's a National Book Network. Um, and then some of the bigger publishers actually distribute books by smaller presses. So Melville House, for example, is a small publisher that is distributed by, um, by, Random, by Penguin Random House. Norton is an independent, smaller, it's in that next tier, like source books right below um, the big five. And they have um, um, Pensler Publishers, for example, is one of their clients. So if you are, as a bookstore, if you source books from various of the distributors, then you get information from them. Um, Ingram Publisher Services, for example, publishes Europa, 
which um, I think one of their authors just won the Booker Prize, or at least was nominated for the Booker Prize. They have an excellent sales rep. They're also the um, distributor for Ocean View, which is another small crime you know, publication mm-hmm. run out of Florida by the Goosens. Um, and I've been doing it for so long, you know, that people contact me um, very often, in fact, every day. <laughs> Uh, to tell me about books that they have. And and unfortunately, most of those people are either self-published or published by Amazon or, you know, some. And and so we've had to take a stand that unless their books are distributed by Ingram, the major wholesaler, or International Publisher Services or one of the other I mentioned, we can't really afford to buy those books because the bookkeeping, the accounting and so forth is just really burdensome but you know me I read almost all the books that you know and not a lot of booksellers have time to do that there's a woman in Minnesota who I am convinced does not actually work in her bookstore but spends all her time reading books (laughs) Uh, I mean and she's always so far ahead I've never I mean I really admire her for it but I can't imagine how she does it anyway um there's no Let let me let me ask you one question that that's fresh on my mind because I just filled out a, a query, a form from uh, I think a thriller organization about mm-hmm. books being and stories being created by AI, and whether the would, would we have our books agreed to be generated through AI? What role does it play? What do the do the readers need to know that this is a story that was created by AI? And I, and I guess that would actually come down to booksellers. Would you sell a book that was published, but the author was a computer no, program? Yeah. Absolutely not. I totally draw the line at that. I find it hard enough when there are publishers who, who are not always upfront about, there was a big book that came out last summer and the publisher was not at all upfront about who the real author was. You had to really pay attention to discover that it was essentially ghostwritten um, because they made a big hype about it. It was a, you know, a debut, which it is not. And it was written by so-and-so, which it was not, you know. And I briefly fell into the trap and then realized what had happened and then, you know, discarded that and went another way. So, you know, ghostwriting is an honorable profession. And um there are many people who've done either made a living or learned to write their own novels, ghostwriting. They're, you know, I particularly true in celebrity memoirs and biographies. That's where you find the most ghostwriting. And I think it was Robert Harris who actually wrote a book called The Ghostwriter, in which he sort of dipped into how the whole thing works so i'm fine with that you know i'm fine with ghostwriting as long as it's acknowledged as ghostwriting when i'm not fine with it is when some more famous person is claimed to be you know the author and the ghostwriter is hidden and that part is i don't like that Uh, and i would feel exactly the same way about ai as i would feel about a hidden ghostwriter right the thing that I guess I just can't wrap my head around is that AI would come with a lot of imagination as opposed to absorbing data and putting it in a more predictable I can't see what the way. point of it is. I mean, I'm, I'm really, I mean, I understand why the thriller writers are taking a look at it. And I do think there are going to be some really interesting stories ahead 
about AI generated fiction. But, you know, there's also that whole question of fan fiction, which I never paid a lot of attention to until, as you know, we're the Outlander bookstore. So Diana Gabaldon has um, had to cope with a ton of fan fiction, which, you know, in one sense could be um, could be viewed as a tribute or, um, you know, an expression of um, devotion or fascination or whatever. But it's not okay when it's put out there to make money, when somebody decides they're going to write, quote, fan fiction and basically steal your world and your characters and write about it in such a way that they get to profit from it. That's a whole different deal. Um, and AI sort of strikes me that way too. I mean, with all the things you'd have to do to program, you know, a, a computer to write a novel, why not just write it yourself? Well, what would really kill me is if the AI wrote my book and it was better than what I wrote. <laughs> well, there's that. There could be a possibility. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, there are new frontiers in communication and computers and everything all the time. So um, I find that you have to be more and more nimble to survive, even as a bookseller. Um, things that I would never have even thought about doing. But I mean, I mean, this is our heading towards our thirty-fourth year, and you know, the the revolution in communication, in working with customers. And when I started the Poison Pen, there was barely a fax machine available. So. The first years of the poison pen, I would invite people when they would come into the store and say, boy, this is so neat. I wish we had one of these back home in like Dubuque, Iowa. And I would say, sign here and I will write to you and we can ship you books, which they did. I mean, we, we don't actually have a marketing plan. We, we don't advertise, never had a marketing budget, whatever it is. Um, but back then, you know, I would write it out laboriously. I had a friend who would I mean, it was better than typesetting, but pretty close to, to doing that. And we would we would then send it to the printer and it would come back and we would have to print out labels. And that became more and more automated. You know, you had to figure out how to get your database, you know, to print out labels. Then we would have to fold the newsletter and put labels on it. And then we had to tape it so it could go through the post office. And then we had to stamp it. It's a huge endeavor and the cost of fortune. And the fax machine was really there for overseas customers. And then the problem was, how did people pay for books? If you were, they sent checks. And if you were overseas, it was a lot more complicated because we didn't have all the, we didn't have PayPal, we didn't have international credit cards, you know, the whole bit. But anyway, we persevered and, you know, all those problems really got solved. I mean, you know, I sit down and, and I put something into MailChimp and it goes out bang to 20,000 people. And, you know, there we are. And, you know, we either get money by PayPal or by credit card. I have learned that international debt cards, debit cards do not process in the United States. So we have to say to people, either you have to use a credit card or you have to use PayPal. Is that, are you telling me you don't use Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency? No, we are not doing cryptocurrency. I don't even want to go there. So we were not affected by the whole FSX disaster. Uh -huh. My point is that, you know, we have been propelled by technology, which in many ways has solved problems, but in other ways is it creates problems. And, you know, you have to kind of keep up with the flow, for example, I don't understand TikTok. I'm never going to understand how TikTok is selling books. 
And I don't actually care how TikTok is selling books, but there are bookstores who are doing extremely well, you know, marketing through TikTok. Look at Colleen Hoover, you know, who could miss it? You know, an absolute phenomenon. And it's it's all part of their program. Well, okay. So at some point, our government may say that a Chinese-based technology can't happen here now. I mean, you know, there may be a whole shutdown of TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, so you can get a tool and you can learn a tool and then circumstances may take away the tool. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? Uh, there's a new shiny object that gets everybody's attention. Well, you know, I mean, marketing platforms keep changing, you know, the, the whole bit. So um, I think it's still very hard to substitute for um, live community. I didn't think, I mean, Zoom is wonderful and it's been great for us. Um, I think over 70% of our customers don't live in Arizona now and, you know, they're all over the world. So this conversation you and I are having will reach people who are never going to come to Scottsdale. They just probably were never going to do that. And I do a lot of international um, authors. I, I launched Michael Robotham from Sydney, an East US publication on Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, rather. I did a British author currently living in France. Um, you know, we couldn't do that when everybody visited the store live. But I still think that, you know, an actual sit down with an author is the best way to go. Mm -hmm. We stream all our events so people get to share in that, but it's hard to erase that personal connection. Um, it's just not the same on TikTok. So that's why I'm kind of baffled by how it's working as well as it does. But, you know, but I'm 82. Right. I'm not 12 or 22 or 32 when all of this is a lot more familiar. Right. And I think Zoom makes a big difference if you've already had in person contact with the person you're talking to, like our conversation today is different than if I were just always electronically Zooming with you for conversations. We have this history together, which is important. Yeah, no, absolutely true. You know, and I'm glad that it allows us to continue to have, and I, I will say that since we stream all of our events, that streaming from the store in a live event is a lot more interesting television than, to, than a Zoom event where you and I are, are two faces here on a screen. And they tend to get a much bigger audience. We've noticed that the number of people, because it's usually, it's never fewer than 500 and usually it's more like a couple of thousand. Um, it's gone as high as 60,000. And wow. I don't think it's ever been under 500. But anyway, I we can generally tell that there is a larger electronic audience so to speak mm -hmm. if this if the event is being streamed from the bookstore than if it is purely a zoom event um and you know it it really makes it interesting sometimes you can forget about that bigger audience because it's you know in the store but the and it, and it feels intimate that way but on the other hand zoom feels intimate in a lot of ways that is not true in a live event you know, and sometimes I've talked to authors on Zoom and we forget that it's not just the two of us having a talk right, and that right. anybody's actually listening to right. it or watching it. Um, and occasionally I remind authors, you know, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't go there. <laughs> right. Or maybe or not get into too many inside stories that the audience is not 
Well, yeah, uh, or political statements or whatever. Right. I, you know, I'm Roe versus Wade really does offend me, even at my age when I'm not, you know, going to be pregnant or have children anymore. Um, I find that a real assault, and so I'm I'm willing to stand up on Zoom and say, you know, that I that I feel that way. But there are many other any other cultural, political, whatever it is, things that that is just better to avoid. Um, than it is to spark controversy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, every once in a while, we have to stand up for something. No, pick your battles. Yeah, no, pick really true. So anyway, I'm really pleased to hear that um, Sam has got another life and that um, Ethel, Ethel will return for <laughs> at least one more book. That's great. And I really want to have Barry back because they were just so funny. Uh, well, he wants to see you. So if Barry comes back, you'll Good. be the first. Well, that would be wonderful. And then knowing you and your fertile mind, you may yet come up with, you know, <laughs> something besides Ethel um, <laughs> down the road. But I do think you have hit at the moment uh, a sort of rising trope, which is the elder sleuth. And I don't know exactly why that's true. Maybe it's just because more people are living longer, but um, it's, it's because I'm older. <laughs> Well, no, I know you and I are definitely elder sleuths, but I just mean the interest in them. And right. it may be, it may be that the the older audience is, you know, playing to an older audience is part of it. Um, or maybe it's just a recognition, you know, I mean, they're demonstrating in France right as we speak, you know, against raising the pension age and all. Maybe mm -hmm. this because people are living longer and leading better, healthier, stronger lives as they get older that... Um, that's becoming, I mean, did anybody ever actually ask how old Poirot was, or did anybody care how old Miss Marple was? I mean, did it even come up? No, uh, other than the fact that they were able to be invisible when they needed to be. Yeah, but sense. I mean, especially Miss Marple. Marple. Yeah, she was the classic, a spinster of this parish, which is what right. the, you know, the British would say. And she was the spinster of this parish, for, you know, decades, uh, without apparently ever getting any older. <laughs> Right. So, you know, anyway, I think you've hit into or you, you know, you've struck a little vein there that I think is worth exploring. So um, you're also, I think, Mark, you know, better equipped than a lot of authors um, to do to do social media and do promotions. I mean, you have a background in um, television. What is your background? Why don't you tell people? Before it's in uh, it's in film and video production. I came out of school and my day job has been uh, uh, television broadcasting. I was a director here in Charlotte and I was a producer director in Washington, D.C. Uh, my claim to fame in Washington was directing the pool feed from the White House the night Richard Nixon oh. resigns. So, uh, I, and so I, that's part of the Washington, the years there, and that's where I met my wife in that area. So it gives me a chance to kind of reconnect with the Washington roots. Um, and then I started writing, well, Poison Pen Press published my first book and took, you took it in 2002 and it came out 2003. So we are looking at 20 years, 20 plus years I've been able to write and still do my video work so keeps me out of trouble and i enjoy things very feel done that and very, to work with with you and and the whole team at uh, poison pen press it's just been great
Well, I'm glad you get to continue working with Diane and with Beth, um, you know, and Holly. That I think that's wonderful that it has gone on to have a life of its own, even though, well, a different life, let me put it that way, than it was when we sold it. Um, so that's very gratifying to me. Right. Um, Jacob, why don't you pop in here and see if there are any questions or comments from the audience that you would like to present? Jacob always has great questions. Hey, Mark. Hey, Jacob. Yeah, Good we got tons you. of uh, uh, comments here on Facebook. Um, a lot of people excited for the book, for sure. Um, so Ethel was based on an actual person. Um, have you ever uh, met someone in your past or heard a story about someone that you've written about in your previous books? Um, I mean, for example, Sam Blackman, was he based on anyone? I'm not sure that Mark isn't a bit frozen, or maybe it's me. Yeah, he's having some video issues. Uh, Sam was not based on anyone playing stories. Oh, you see me? I can see. Can you hear me? Well, you know can what? You, you, might, okay? you might want to disconnect and let Jacob bring you back in, because I think your signal is a little faulty. Okay. Just end the meeting, and then Jacob can click you back in. Should I leave and then rejoin? Yeah. Yeah, I think he needed to do that, Jacob. It was, um, I was afraid for a minute it was me freezing, but. Yeah, me I, too, yeah. Yeah, that it was Mark. All right. So he'll be back. How are things going at the store? This is President's Day weekend. You know, I was going to tell you that you might want to go and pick um, a few books out from behind you and take them down and put them out for sale. Okay. Take the axle rods. Take a bunch of axle rods or something, you know. Okay, are you back? Can you yep, hear me? Okay. Much better. Okay, thank you, Jacob. Uh, I was talking about the real character was um, a, a gentleman who I talked to when he was in his 90s, who had his father had been a, uh, been a funeral director in Brevard, North Carolina, and the African-American funeral director from Asheville came over needing help to move uh, to service a family because all he had were horse and wagons and they needed to get this body down to the family plot in North Georgia. And that kind of gave me the idea for um, Sam Blackman's first case. I said it in the present and, and there's a VA hospital in Asheville. So I knew if he was a wounded Iraq amputee, that's where he would logically be. And so I took that character need who needed to be my detective and paired him up into a story that was uh, set back in the 19, 19s when they this black funeral director, the white funeral director, and the little and his and a little ten year old boy who happened to be my ninety year old friend uh, went down through the South Jim Crow and what they had to do to get to travel through the Jim Crow South. And I got that story out of my system. And Barbara told me, "You're not finished with that character yet." To stop what I was working on, which was a Barry book, and come back and visit. Sam and and so that's part of that confidence she showed in the first Sam book is why the ninth one's coming out next uh, April. So he's a wonderful character, but the other thing that was so great about the Sam Blackman series, which I mentioned, is that it gives Mark because he's more mobile than Barry, who is in Gainesboro, uh, a chance to plumb all different aspects of North Carolina's cultural and political and ge geographical 
uh, features. So it's been a it's been a real delight to work on all those books. I've learned so much um, from doing it. Uh, the last one was a really fascinating um, spy story, and I would never ever have guessed uh, the murder in Rat Alley. Don't it's not Rat Alley that is really the figure in it, but um, it's just they're a real education to read. So yeah, and it's things I stumbled across that I grew up in that area and have found things like the, the, the commune with the king and queen, the ex-slaves that got settled the commune and set themselves up with, as a royal house with the king and queen and their cabins were, one was in North Carolina and 30 yards away, the queen's cabin was in South Carolina so they could move white lightning back and forth between it whenever a raid was coming, they just crossed the state line. So things like that, that you kind of explore in, in an area that you wouldn't have known otherwise if you weren't attuned to looking for these kinds of stories that's what makes it fun for me at least mark do you have any other uh, series or characters other than sam that you would like to go re revisit i mean you're, you're on your 21st book now is that what it is this is uh yeah it's 21st book and um well well as we talked earlier barry clayton my funeral director in a small town is someone who i haven't written about in probably four or five years that i would probably like to go back and pick up on. Uh, once once I came up with Ethel and they wanted a second book, that sort of took the priority. But now that that would be satisfied this this uh, September, then I'll probably be looking for uh, another option, whether it's back to Barry or, because I know at least I'll have one reader, that'll be Barbara for Barry. That's right. <laughs> Actually, I can, even That's get a start. I can even get there earlier in the process. <laughs> see what happens. Mark, Mark is wonderful at plotting. He has some I mean, his use of food stamps and one of the berries was just was just amazing. He introduced me to the Hmong culture, for example. I didn't realize that a serious number of Vietnamese, um, the Hmong from the highlands and settled in North Carolina. So, um, you know, it really is just a revelation to work on your books. Thank you. Anything else there, Jacob? Yeah, this one's from Linda. Um, have you had any big surprises uh, during your career or what has surprised you the most during your writing career? Oh, I think the the, the biggest surprise I had was when uh, the first Blackman book came out and uh, I had worked on the cover with Rob Rosenwald and, uh, and the color illustrator. And I got a call from the Biltmore House with a cease and desist order to stop the cover the day it went to press. So. <laughs> That gave me, and, and, it, and it was five o'clock on Friday afternoon, so I had to worry all weekend, and, and uh, we, they were able to settle something with, uh, once they realized how we were using the image of the Biltmore House and everything, we were fine, but uh, that was an unpleasant surprise. Uh, sometimes I get a surprise when people will say, I pass your Blackman books on to people who are moving to Asheville, because it gets them to know the region and some part of the history, and so in that way, it feels like it serves as a welcoming uh, vehicle, you know, for for readers who want to read, particularly, especially because of the setting. Okay, great. Um, and are you, would you classify yourself as a topical writer? Um, I mean, do you first come up with a topic, um, or do you personally find characters to be more important in your stories? Um, I think uh, character drives the story, and because. Uh, you know, they, it's happened differently for different books. Um, 
the plot for the, the book called Murder in Rat Alley that had to do with the death of a scientist back during the Apollo program whose body was discovered you know, 20, 30 years later. Um, that was fitting into an existing series. I think something like Ethel, that's a new, new character. I didn't have a story for her, but I had this character that I envisioned. And so it was driven by, by character. But I think in the final analysis, something has to happen. I mean, the characters are interesting, but you reveal the character traits through the way they react to, to events and other people around them. And so it's, it's clearly a meshing of the two character and plot to come together and they, they each play equal. I guess there would be a three-legged stool. I can only, this plot character and whatever that other leg is, maybe booksellers uh, that make no, something it's successful. Landscape. It's the landscape of the story. Right. You're it right. Really is. It, and by landscape, I don't mean just the physical landscape, but again, it's the culture, it's the geography, it's the history. Um, Mark, Mark is a real, uh, an amazing ability to, to bring all three of them together. And as he's written these longer series, there are secondary characters who have come to life in, um, and moved along the stories. Barry had, for example, a really interesting family his father um, had Alzheimer's and, you know, eventually we, we lose him, but he has an uncle who's a real character, his mother's brother, who comes into play. Nikayla, I don't think, was originally a main player in the Sam Blackman, but she was irresistible in, in Blackman's coffin, so she stuck around and became the secondary lead. I mean, a, you know, they became a team. Um, but then there's a lawyer down the hall and, you know, that's what happens in really good series is you get a whole ensemble cast. Right. You, you bring them in for a specific purpose and find out that they've, they're not going to leave the page and they have more to contribute than you originally. That's realized. right. Some of, some of them leave, but some of them, some of them stick and some of them, some of them are harmed, you know, in the, in the course of the, of the story, not everybody survives. Um, right. so, you know. It's uh, there's even a dog. <laughs> right. Right. An important dog. I remember. Uh, I think it was Ian Rankin when uh, you had the conference in 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 uh, Phoenix and Scottsdale celebrating his 30th year in publication. Who said he realized he had entered a dog into the series and would never be able to get out of the dog. You can kill lots of people, but you better not lay a hand on the dog. dog. Actually, Ian, years and years ago, came to the store and I had insisted that he come wearing his kilt. And for whatever reason, um, a, an earlier dog than the one we now own uh, came to that event. And I remember Ian looking at me saying, you're the only person in the whole world, Barbara, that would have made me come wearing a kilt and then upstaged me with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> so Ian and I have a very long history. <laughs> He's great. I love his books. He is great. He's wonderful. Well, I think that's it for questions. Wonderful. Well, Mark, what a pleasure it's been to talk to you. And now, of course, that I know there's a Sam Blackman, I'm going to go and read my email as soon as you send it to me. <laughs> okay. And I will then tell um, Mark fans and Sam Blackman fans um, about the book and and make it available for you in April so that we can have the fun of reading it. Anyway, um, Secret Lives. So as a reminder, it's up for a major award. It's a really nice debut for a new character. Um, lots of fun. And we have copies, but you can also get them anywhere. And presumably there's an audiobook version as well, I would imagine, as well as the digital version. So 
all good news. So thank you very much for watching, Jacob. Thank you very much for doing the technology. And I hope you all have a wonderful President's Day weekend. Bye. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Jacob. Enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.